a dead end here. Brian, I'm a poor pensioner. You got nothing here. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, uh, shall we? Shall we just uh, dive in here <laughs> and get going? So yeah, we are here with uh, David Ruccio. Um, and uh, I know David uh, uh, from uh, the University of Notre Dame, uh, as uh, I was in the MFA program at uh, Notre Dame and ended up as somehow as a grad assistant to an economics professor, and that professor was David Ruccio. And uh, David, thank you for being here. Um, we're really happy to have you here. I'm um just uh it's you know been a while since we've talked and um good to have you here my pleasure so to to kind of jump in um i kind of wanted to follow up a bit on the interview that will be um or actually is now um in the pages of rm uh our uh kenan airshall uh, interviewed you for the journal. Um, and something that came up in, in the interview was uh, sort of, uh, a, I should also mention the f former editor of Rethinking Marxism, um, that back in the day, there was a sort of Gutenberg 2.0 desktop publishing moment that kind of happened and sort of enabled this sort of uh, fledgling journal to, 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 sort of begin and it's obviously still still going here over 30 years later um and so a question that kind of comes up with this uh for me and i think for for some others is uh this realization of that technological capability but sometimes sometimes it it feels like it gets uh mistaken for equaling you know some kind of revolutionary struggle right uh, facebook also kind of comes up in that interview mm -hmm. um so so i wanted to ask you how how important was that enablement of you know desktop publishing uh versus really just the collective that was behind the journal and maybe you can talk a bit to those to those early days in that collective um and you know what are what are your thoughts there it, 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 as we're also then thinking about today constantly new technological innovations happening. Uh, but wh where does revolutionary struggle really exist? Where does it begin? Ah, great questions and, and, a, and a big topic. Um, it seems to me there were three crucial parts to starting Rethinking Marxism as a journal. One was an idea. Um, two was a group of people. And three, as you note, was the technology. Um, so we had an idea that, that Marxism um, was necessary, that it needed to be revitalized, um, and the kind of stuff that we were doing at the University of Massachusetts Amherst um, wasn't reflected out there in the journals. Um, and in all honesty, we had a hard time getting our stuff into the existing journals. Um, the existing radical journals, for example, in economics, but also outside of economics. Um, so we decided to start our own journal. That, 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 that was the in, initial idea. Uh, we started a group, a kind of study group at, at, at UMass Amherst. Um, it was mostly a, a, a group of graduate students who were working on their dissertations. And so it was a place to 
discuss our work um, before proceeding to write a dissertation. Uh, and also along the way, chapters, dissertation proposals, and so on. But always with the idea that we would start a journal. So that, that, was, that was a collective project from the very beginning. And it was not really about Marxism and, and a rethinking of Marxism. It, you know, we, we were a bit pretentious. Um, we wanted to contribute to revitalizing a Marxist intellectual and cultural tradition in the United States. Um, and that meant, you know, many of us were studying economics at the time, in economics, but also beyond that. And so not only to do um, economic theory, uh, not only to do class analysis, but also to broaden the ways in which Marxism um, took form, right? So the discursive forms of Marxism. So not only um, the traditional academic article, which we did many over the years, but also in the arts, um, also shorter pieces, um, what are now remarks, uh, reviews. It, it, so, so we thought that important. We wanted to break, in some sense, some of the barriers that had been erected um, within Marxist intellectual output. Right. So that was the idea. Then we had a group. Um, we had a group of, of of very dedicated people. Many of them students of Stephen Resnick and and and, and Rick Wolf um, at UMass Amherst. Uh, later on, some other people like Julie Graham, who was in the geography department, and 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 some students who had worked with her, um, and it, it it was the the idea was never to how should I put it convert or proselytize or enlarge the group per se. Hmm. That the idea was we were who we were. And we wanted to do that work, and we wanted it to that work to be reflected in the journal. The journal itself was the embodiment of that idea. So we wanted to publish work that broke some of those barriers that went back into the Marxian tradition and sought out some of those alternative interpretations that had been lost, perhaps, over the years. Um, Marxism, in, in at least in the eyes of some of us, had become a bit stodgy. Um, so we wanted to revitalize it in that way, but we also wanted to go outside the Marxian tradition um, and see within feminism and postmodernism and deconstruction and, 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 and anti-racism and, and traditional black Marxism and so on and so forth. What are the ways in which we could revitalize Marxism by exploring some of those connections? Right? And, and the people, and we have many disagreements amongst ourselves. But it took form as a collective project. So it was, hell, we could have done something other than a journal. The journal happened to be a way, in part because we were academics, that we could do a project together. And as far as I'm concerned, doing a collective project was always more important than a particular kind of journal. All right, second part. Mm -hmm. Third part, your question, the technology. We couldn't have done it without the new technology, what, what I called in that interview, Gutenberg II, um, desktop publishing. And, and it was very simple. We were a new journal. We were a new Marxist journal in, when the idea was first floated in 1986, um, the fall of the wall is coming. Marxism is not all that popular, at least by many. We had people literally saying we were crazy. This was a stupid time to be launching a new Marxist journal. Yeah. Um, 
they were right. But 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 we just disregarded their view because we were going to do it. Uh, come hell or high water, big problem. We couldn't get a publisher. No, we we contacted all of the major publishers um, around the country, all those academic publishers. Uh, I won't name the ones who turned us down, but there were lots of them. Um, so how the hell are we going to do a journal? And it just so happened that that desktop computers. And desktop publishing, literally a program called PageMaker was available that we could then use. And so here's the collective work to literally not only get the articles in the way that every, every academic journal out there does, but we had a team that inputted those articles into the computer word by word, comma by comma. Um, we then produced camera-ready copy. Now, you're talking about people who are, who are, who are not um, at the uh, cutting edge of technology. No, yeah. um, produce camera-ready copy and then take it to a collective publishing venture in the Pioneer Valley um, where they produced issues of the journal. Much to our astonishment. The first one came out and we were amazed. We designed the journal, we produced the journal, we copy edited um, everything. And, and for three years, without a publisher, we were able to produce a journal, distribute the journal, literally sitting. We recently lost one of our, our longstanding comrades, Steve Kallenberg, um, literally going to his apartment in, in, in Northampton. Um, with with envelopes and sticking in copies of the journal and putting on mailing uh, labels and sending the damn thing out. We we could not have done it without without Gutenberg too, without desktop publishing. I don't think the technology in and of itself is revolutionary. We, we obviously Marxist and and every other radical tradition out there has used whatever available technology exists whether it be mimeograph or, or whatever, right? Hand setting um, to get their stuff out. That happened to be the one at the time that allowed us um, to produce a journal, to build a subscription list. And once we had that, then in that third year, to then go to commercial presses, we found Guilford Press in New York City that were willing to take us on and take away some of the, the production stuff um, that, yeah, in all honesty, that we were working ourselves to the bone uh, at our, our production team yeah. uh, was ready to go on strike um, that that saved our bacon um, by taking this on. And then uh, from there, we became um, a, a well-published, disseminated, and so on. Um, Marxist journal. Can I have a follow-up question? So, yeah. you know... Um, that you're describing a moment where print publishing was just of absolute importance to even getting a deal with a publisher. But now the, the sort of technological change that we're facing is, and, and, and actually question even for RM, is the switch to open source publishing, uh -huh. right? That's li like literally what all of our production is already online. Right. Our readership, to be honest, is 99% people who are accessing our articles as part Absolutely. of databases. They're not, our readership is not reading those print 
copies that were so precious and so much work. And what you just described is the thing that you needed to like, you know, that people were going to go on strike. So what do you think now for that next question? I know that, I mean, I'm just asking what, what like, well, what, I mean, it, it yeah. happened during my time on the board, yeah. um, my time as editor, but also serving on the board both before and after that. Um, and this is an argument we had with the publishers. We had a certain number of subscriptions, and that was key to these these publishing houses, if you will. Um, Guilford, uh, first of all, and then Taylor and Francis uh, later on. Um, and and we kept arguing to them. Yeah. It's a funny thing. P publishing is a weird industry. Uh, I don't know how it works um, because because anyway. Um, our argument was we've got X number of subscribers, thousands of subscribers, 1,500 subscribers, but we have tens of thousands of readers. Why? Because they're reading online. Or even before online, they were passing around like Samazdat. They were passing around copies of articles. So, so if, right, here's the problem for a commercial publisher. They only get paid. Um, for the for the paid subscriptions. <laughs> so our argument was we are more influential as a journal because it's out there. Yeah. So it, it was a thorny problem, which we debated a great deal. We were producing a commodity. So here are Marxists who are producing a commodity that is mm -hmm. paid for by subscribers. And those subscribers are sending in their annual amounts. We give away a certain number of free copies. Uh, the press then pays for the costs of publishing the journal, and then we as a journal get a bit of a cut, right? So that was the, the deal with the press, um, and we were very careful with our money. Okay, that's the old model. And then, as you say, there's a new model. Um, and the new model the means that they're getting paid through the database subscriptions, right? So we're, they're still getting, that, we're still getting money. We're still getting revenue for downloads, but those downloads are like by far the gargantuan. So the financial model yeah. changed. And, yeah. and But in the interim, there were no payments for the online stuff. Hmm. So, so you, that became you had a problem kinda... if we were going to finance it. If we were going to pay Jared, yeah. if we were going to pay other people associated with the journal. We never had much of a paid staff, but we had some. Because we yeah. simply realized we could not do it on volunteer labor law. We were killing ourselves. You know, so great. Here we are as Marxists who, in, in producing a journal and in running conferences, are exploiting ourselves. That was not a pretty picture. Um, and we had serious debates about what that meant. So un unless and until we had money coming in from, as you say, online downloads, we couldn't do this thing. What? What's your sense now, Lydia? Has that problem been solved? I mean, the... We the subscript the money that we get from subscriptions is just it's shrunken it, it uh, right. that that's not no longer as much, as major of a player as it was in that previous model. It is my understanding that it the the way the revenue model has has gone to it's gone towards the database right mm -hmm. it, and library subscriptions and, yeah exactly yeah. and so we are part of you know for some people JSTOR. Um, other people access through, you know, um, ProQuest, 
right? Um, so there's a, it d- depends on how they're, I don't know why that they're packaged e- like that differently. Maybe that's something to look into. But it, I just get the sense that th- this is, aside from even, let's put aside the, the revenue generated, an, a more existential kind of question that we are facing as the journal, especially as more, you know, universities are even changing some of their rules about, uh, you know, indexing and what is what. And so it's making it actually more possible, even in terms of tenure, to acknowledge open source publications in a way that that didn't figure on people's CVs. So from from that perspective, there's a different, and then there's also just the demand for knowledge to be put out there in the comments. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know that there are as many legacy kinds of journals like our. I mean, I don't think that New Left Review is considering going open source, right? Um, mm-hmm. But there are others, like you know, Borderlands, and there are, there are other journals that are leftist and are you know, trying to support themselves through, you know, like if you, if you look at Jacobin even, right, you don't need to have a subscription to access. And then that, that actually helps produce, helps them be part of a kind of popular discourse in a different way. There's now, no doubt about it, right? So yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm raising these questions because you know, as you know, we, we, we have like still, what, five years on our contract? I, I, this is not an immediate question. But I'm asking, what is what are your thoughts about that? We are obviously facing a different kind of technological change that actually makes possible open source publication in a way that may not have even been thinkable so much 10 years ago. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, I mean, my own view early on was... I don't. I don't mind the fact that RM is being produced as a commodity. I get. I get you know, it's the, it's one of the wonderful contradictions of capitalism, right? So, commodities can also contain radical ideas. Commodities can contain Marxist ideas, and we wanted to get it out there, and that became the vehicle. You're yeah. absolutely right. Early on, that if we could produce a commodity called a journal that came out four times a year, that we would get two readers, and we did. We did by desktop publishing. We did then with a commercial publisher. And now, as you say, it has changed. Commercial publishers, by the way, are trying to figure this out. First of all, as you well know, there's been a tremendous concentration within journal publishing. So there are now three journal publishers that publish 90% of the journals out there. That's a real problem, right? Because unless you're with one of them, you ain't going to get out there. Except, as you say, as an open source publication. Open source publications have a problem, right? One, they do have to bring in some money if they want to have any kind of staff at all. And two, you know, an issue I, I think that we're going to talk a little bit about later on is what happens in the university. Yeah. Right? Because in the new corporate university, there's a kind of pseudo value attached to academic publishing. So they're counting rankings and citations. And, and open source journals don't have those. So that's a real problem for academics in the academy who need certain kinds of things in order to get hired, in order to get promoted, in order to keep their damn jobs. 
So I don't, I don't know where that goes. Me, my own inclination is the more open source, the better, yeah. right? Because that's the more dissemination. So the fact that, I mean, when I think of how tiny our world was back in the day of disseminating ideas amongst ourselves, then imagining a larger audience, right? Once, we, once we're a desktop publishing, then with a commercial publisher clearly expanding on that, following that up the next stage, in, in terms of open source publishing or, or let's do it more broadly, social media, right? So again, you know, my own writing has changed over time with a blog and now a Twitter account and yeah. so on. I do that. I don't get a penny if that quite the opposite. I, I pay to, 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 to do this stupid work of mine. Um, the academic publishers themselves, you know, from, from what I gather and I read a bit of this literature, they don't know which way is up right now because they're being pressured by some of us. We want more readers. Yeah. And they're, and they're in, in a, in, in a situation where they also want money. Anyway, that I, I, I mean, I, I think, I think the next few years are really going to be telling in terms of that. Can RM survive that? I, I think it can. Oddly enough, it may mean reverting to an old model, which is we do it ourselves. Yeah. And all the work involved in that, as you well know, and that's that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's so many tensions and, and contradictions in there. Uh, it, so maybe we should kind of switch gears a little bit here, but you kind of already brought it up. Um, you know, you, you talk about the corporate university. You've had your own experiences in, in that system. <laughs> of, um, you know, that, you know, a sort of, um, as I've heard you talk about it, I've, I've seen you talk about it on your blog and again, in, in, in the interview with Kanan, um, that there's this sort of sense that comes out of a, a, a relocation or a dislocation of your work that I'm interested in, um, that you've, you've, uh, continued to do the, the work that that it seems like you have identified for yourself that you're an educator and you're you've been passionate about that for a long time and that has transferred over to you to your blog project uh, occasional links and commentary um so so partly there do you, what uh, i guess i'm interested in um again this dis or relocation um, in terms of a trend, uh, in terms, uh, again, maybe related to, to what we're doing with the journal and what others might be thinking about doing with their own similar projects. Um, and then also to kind of a second question, not, not so much related is this problem of the corporate university. Uh, where do you see it headed? Is there anything we can do about it? What can be done? What should people be thinking about there um, in terms of, you know, the struggle that goes on um, from this train that seems to have left the station? I left it. And, and, and so let, let's start with the corporate university and then, and then go back to, to some of the other stuff. Sure. Um, it, it is, as you say, it is a process I lived through, um, in part because um, my analysis is this new corporate university emerged during the 
almost four decades that I spent teaching, right? So I've been retired for two years now. Um, when I started teaching in the early 1980s, when I started at the University of Notre Dame, there was something called faculty governance. We ran the university and every other part of the university was there to assist us to do what we did, um, which was to, um, to think critically and teach critically, right? That was the central mission of the university. Um, yeah, I don't think and, people and understand colleges and universities, the academy in the United States. Yeah, um, I don't think people understand the big the change. That, that university, those colleges and universities have changed. Part of what happened to me was peculiar to Notre Dame um, as the premier Catholic university in the United States and all that was involved with that. But, but a, a large part of it was Notre Dame, like every other college and university in the country, was transformed. Um, what that meant, I think, is that faculty governance died, right? So, so whereas, concrete example, whereas when I started teaching, the university administration, the, the folks in the suits, if you will, um, worked for us. They were there to help us do our jobs in conducting research and teaching. Um, later on, we worked for them. And what yeah. that meant very specifically was they set the agenda. They decided what the university was all about. And we were there just to carry that out. In fact, in fact, at Notre Dame and I think in many other places, we were bought off. That is, our salaries went up. Our teaching loads went down. Mm -hmm. um, and, and here's the path with the devil, right? Keep your nose to the grindstone. Do research. Get it into good journals, get the books out and stay, excuse my French, the fuck away from university administration. That, that, that was the deal. And yeah. in all honesty, my colleagues bought it. They signed the pact. And that was the end of faculty governance. So staff and faculty became employees. Students became customers. Education and critical thinking, critical research became only a sideline to other money-making activities. And as I mentioned before, research then became evaluated. How do you do that? Because right? no, these administrators, they don't want to read this stuff. So they invent a system, what I call a system of pseudo values of rankings and citations in order to evaluate the quality of their work. Very concrete example. So when 10 years ago, I complained that I hadn't had a raise in five years, I, I, I went to my boss, the dean, and said, I, 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 no, where's my raise? And I had the letter stating that my work, my research, my publications had no value. And therefore, I was being paid appropriately. So, so yeah. that's the university. Here's the problem. Right. So and, and I would add one last thing, and that is the percentage of um, of the teaching that takes place is not done by regular tenure track or tenured faculty. Right. So all, all, the, the academic yes. precariat, I know, all I know those this doctors and part time teachers who are living off of, you know, teaching 10 courses at three different colleges and universities. And I mean, 
So yeah, it's 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 so enough it's to problem. make anyone burn out. I've been. I yeah. mean, that's that's yeah. that's my life. You just and I think our colleagues at some schools forget that. Right, because all of their colleagues are are tenured or tenure track. Well, conveniently, they, they it most places, Mo- most people who teach college students in the United States um, are not in a regular position. They don't conduct research. They don't write books and articles. Um, they barely read them. So, the group of of tenured or tenure track faculty who do that is a small minority. At least two thirds of our colleagues um, in, in the academy are are precarious. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Higher education said it's more like it's above seventy percent. Seventy. Yeah. It's yeah. It's right around seventy percent, and 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 you and, and it's made up of a bunch of people who wanted to do those things too. You know, went to school, had that in mind, uh, and now we're all sitting, like you say, in this precarious. Uh, Position. So, 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 yeah. Stanley Aronowitz, who, as you know, died four days yes, ago, um, yes. in New York City. Um, and Stanley was famous for saying that he had the last good job in America. Um, well, Stanley may have had it. Um, most academics don't have it. Mo- mo- most academics have shit jobs, just just like all the other shit jobs that are out there. Um, and they're overworked, and they're underpaid, and they have absolutely no security. In so the few people, the few of us, I, 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 you know, so I was in a precarious position in terms of dealing with the Notre Dame uh, administration, but I had tenure and they couldn't get rid of me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not true for most academics out there. So, so there's a problem. By the way, I think, so I think there's been a, a, a major transformation of, of the American Academy. Um, and part of the problem is us as is often the case. We don't think about the university. Um, We don't have a good Marxist discussion about the academy, right? There's a long tradition. Go back to Cardinal Newman, right on down through through, through Kerr, down to whatever you want to call it, Bruno Latour, and and what's not. It's a longstanding discussion about what what universities are all about. Um, And we, I'm saying we as Marxists, mostly don't participate in that discussion. We as academics don't participate in it either. So, you know, we analyze the world. Oh, we got an analysis of this and an analysis of that. And and we don't know what to say when it comes to university. We don't yeah. have a shared discussion and a shared discourse about universities. And if Marxists don't have, have it, you can damn well be sure that all the liberals and conservatives out there, they don't have it either. Um, right. That's a problem. So that's on us. Um, what have they been? What should they be? Because I, you know, call me a romantic, but, but I'm of the opinion that, that the universities, the colleges and universities in the United States are one of the last few places where critical thinking could take place, where critical education could take place. And if they go, then, then I think we're sunk. Um, so, so I, I want us to pay attention to it. I want us to think about it. I don't care how many Twitter accounts are out there, how many Facebook pages, how many Instagram, that's not where it's going to take place. They're important for all kinds of reasons, but, but they can't substitute for people having jobs and being paid to think and teach critically. And that's what the Academy is. But this then 
Yeah, this then leads right. then to thinking about organizing. I, mean, I, I come from, at this as a labor organizer in higher ed, a f- former president of an adjunct union. And just like you, you uh, mentioned, that sort of packed with a devil moment also is this big moment of division, right? Where uh, the slide towards less and less full-time you know, tenure track happens. Um, those folks sort of grasping at what they still have, you know, and feeling threatened, rightfully so. Um, and then this large growing group of folks who are in this precarious position have no time to, to organize. We, we all know what's happening. We're all in a bad place. But uh, when you're in it, it can be really tough for people to, to get together. Uh, they're just treading water. So we're in this very kind of over a barrel type situation. Um, so it sounds to me like you're, you're really arguing for, it seems to me like uh, an acknowledgement, a wider acknowledgement of all this. Um, and it seems to me we'd have to, we got to come together somehow. These two sides are going to have to come together and work together. Otherwise, how, how does this change? Does, right. that, but, does but, that seem right to you or do you have another? Some efforts to do that, but... But I'm also pointing about the fact that there is no discourse of this. There's no, there's no ongoing discussion. There's no theory of what a university has right. been and can be. And without that, you don't have the grounds for solidarity, right? So, you know, again, because my colleagues in, in that university, my tenure track or tenured colleagues are the ones who signed on to hiring non permanent, non-traditional, precarious faculty. Oh, they called them technical specialists. They called them professional specialists. They Right? But they wanted out of the classroom. And that's a real problem, right? Marxists don't want out of the classroom. Marxists want to be in the classroom. Marxists don't want to be in the classroom. All right, now this is the tradition out of which I come, right? I had great mentors in this way. They want to teach everything, including those big intro classes. Because that's where politics takes place. My colleagues couldn't wait to get out of their intro classes. They'd, they'd give up anything to get out of those classes and teach their little stupid specialized courses. Me? Give me 200 students, 250 students in an intro class, and I couldn't yeah. have been happier. Yeah, there were all kinds of challenges of doing so, but these are 250 kids right? Who, whose only course in economics is going to come from me, the Marxist. <laughs> That's really powerful. So in this age where people say, oh, public intellectuals have declined and this, that, that bull, certainly around the university, public intellectuals are teaching hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids. And in all honesty, we talked about it before, before we started the podcast. Um, this new book that I've been working on, right, An Introduction to Marx and Economics, was about that. It's, it's a book that, like the journal, is going to get out to, I'm hoping, lots of people who at least, you know, there are a lot of other such books out there. This will be a place where they can get access to Marxist ideas. Good. So, but but again, we haven't spent a lot of time doing this in, in, in ASA and RN, right? Um, only a couple of people have actually spent time trying to analyze colleges and universities. All right, so we're not going to spend all of our time doing that. Not everybody, people are doing important research, but at least an ongoing discussion. And that's that's never existed. So here we are, most of us, not everybody, employed in the universities, and, and we're not talking about the places where we work. 
And not just as, as you say, in terms of labor and employment, those are important issues, but also in terms of what a university is and what it means that the, the tail is now wagging the dog, that it's, that it's sports and it's merchandise and it's R&D and selling patents that are really running the university and, 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 and teaching and research are, are, are afterthoughts. So concrete example, the last classroom I taught in was in, the, in a new academic building. This is 2019. Um, and I taught in this new high-tech classroom in the basement with no windows. <laughs> Talk about an afterthought. Now, it's where they used to keep yeah. the mops and the brooms. <laughs> that, was, that was the classroom. And, and, and that's taking place in all kinds of, you know, all of my friends who teach are reporting exactly the same thing. Let, last point. And the pandemic has only made it worse. Yeah. So while these new corporate universities had their plans for the past decade of what they would wanted to do, cut programs, cut uh, 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 staff, cut faculty, um, they, couldn't, they couldn't get away with it until the pandemic hit. And college after college, university after university, the horror stories that I've been reading about and hearing are, are extraordinary. So they've used the pandemic. Don't waste a good crisis. They used the pandemic in order to carry out plans that were already there on the books. And on the, yeah, on the side too. for students, I mean, just this semester, I had people from the debt collective come into my course uh-huh. and they ran that thing like a, it was like, I mean, I want to say almost like a therapy session because that's where students' feelings are, it's not just feelings, I mean, their material conditions are, they feel crushed by their debt, right? And it's, it is crushing. So it's an odd thing on the student side, they're they're seeing the cost, the price of education go through the roof. And yet you are describing that on 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 the side of the work force themselves, they are being driven in a race to the bottom in terms of labor conditions, even wages, really, right? right. And so what, 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 <laughs> so this means that how, how are students supposed to, they, they don't see that, right? They're like, are you kidding me? I pay, I pay more than I can possibly afford and I will be paying this until I'm 60 and you're telling me this? So what, you know, I, I know that we can say that this is an example of the neoliberalization of the university, right? But of the the kind of crazy thing is that a lot of these things, a lot of them are nonprofit, right? If not the public universities, they're nonprofit institutions. Well, so you... they're, they're, right. I mean, this is the system in the United States. They're yeah. all officially nonprofit. Yeah. They are profit-making institutions, yeah. right? So, so private schools... Right, where you and other and, and I, yeah. these are profit-making institutions called nonprofit. All that means they don't have to pay property taxes, and they, and they don't have to pay corporate income taxes. But that, but but everything about them is that they are money-making, profit-making institutions. First of all, yeah. state institutions are different, except as you know, they're increasingly adopting the same model, especially the flagship schools. Yeah, state funding has been cut, so all these right. Wisconsin Madison, Michigan Ann Arbor, um, California Berkeley, 
they're all breaking off from those state systems and running themselves like private schools based upon endowments and high price tuition. And that's a real problem. It's a real problem for the American working class, right? Because th- this, this was the route to success, right? Public education in this country. Um, but it's also a problem for the inside. So, so your students. There are clear grounds, and, 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 and Jared's point about the, the precarity. There are clear grounds for solidarity amongst full-time faculty, right? Adjunct faculty and students around, but there's no concept of what the university is around which there's solidarity. So again, one of the major changes that that I witnessed, experienced, and and drove me crazy uh, over the course of the time that I was teaching was students who started out as being my collaborators in the classroom became customers. They were treated that way from the day they walked in, in part because they were paying such high Mm -hmm. tuition, their families were paying such high tuition because of the debt that was on the line as a result of that. Um, And and the university, the colleges and universities, when they walked in the door, the students were treated as customers. And our job, the faculty, along with the staff, was to be nice to the customers. Well, that's not my view of education, but it became a real problem as time went on. Um, that, so in my view, a different concept of the university ties us with students so that we are engaged in a collaboration in an intellectual life in the classroom. And along with the non-standard faculty, the adjunct faculty, the precariat, that we have a stake in all of this together. Yeah. Right now, we don't have that. We don't have it because of a lack of organizing efforts. We don't have it because of the pact with the devil. But I also think we don't have it because we don't have a discourse of this university. Of not only what it is, we I think we have a critique of that, but what it could be. And that, yeah, a vision, a vision for something else. Yeah, a vision that we have to discuss and debate and about which we're going to disagree, but at least an ongoing discussion. Because that's what a discourse is. It's an ongoing discussion. And, and we don't have that right now. So everybody's say everybody's worried about what's happening here, there, and elsewhere, and and we, the administration is different. They're thinking about the university, right? We're oh, yeah. not, and 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 we're losing we're losing out as a result of that. Or at least the next generation is. I'm retired. I'm done. <laughs> and congratulations for that. I don't think you're done. And um, maybe we can use that this moment to s- sort of pivot slightly and think about there's there's a ton of questions that I have about the current conjuncture. You know, um, yeah. I was just reading your um, book, you know, Development and Globalization. We know that you've sort of long been an author, thinker. It comes up, it, it's there on your blog, of course, but you know, um, and I know that you sort of looked at carefully, you know, planning, state planning and Marxist discourses on development and radical theories of um, underdevelopment and development. Um, So I guess I want to ask, you know, some questions related to what you think about the, the current moment where Globalization. I mean, there's a instead of proliferation of, you know, America first, but it's not just America first. Our country first, but around the world, 
um, an inability to cohere uh, and come together in international platforms like COVAX, um, you know, uh, in in some ways, I, I know you've thought about globalization so much and now we see a real moment that seems like I, I'm obviously not prepared to say something like globalization is dead because as soon as somebody says something like that, well, that that's just ridiculous. This is just going to there's a, going to be a new era. But there is a significant let's say pause and fragility to global supply chains, and suddenly a new renewed importance to national local production. Uh, and even hyperlocal. I mean, friends in India, and they, there was just demands to have oxygen tanks state by state because of the dramatic emergency. They couldn't even, there were states and provinces that were blocking, you know, tanks from going into another state. So it's just, um, I guess I want, I want to hear you think about that. And then also I want to, I want to hear Given that you, you, you know, in your book, you sort of describe how in some ways your beginning was in anti-Vietnam war politics, right? That that's that was one of the first kind of political movements in which you engaged seriously. Mm -hmm. And so this moment, this is a remarkable, I mean, there's a lot of parallels kind of coming up to that moment and to the, that withdrawal. And you, I, and I know you may not have, all of us are sort of struggling to think through this moment and what are going to be the repercussions. So I understand, you know, you're probably in the process of thinking about this too, but if anybody is willing to think on his feet, I, I think it's you. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. Um, in fact, in fact, it happened this past Monday. Um, I was on a radio, I was supposed to be on a radio program and the, and the topic of the, of the discussion for a half hour, it was supposed to be infrastructure. Um, and like I always do with these things, I had prepared and, and read and, and had things to say about, about uh, uh, Biden's infrastructure bills and, and so on and so forth. And one minute before going on air, the host said, let's talk about Afghanistan. So I then had to spend the next 20 minutes, uh. as you say, picking on my feet or in, on, in, my, in my chair. And, and um, we, we all are. Right. So, you know, you and I have discussed these things before yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and did some writing about it. Um, so some quick things uh, on Afghanistan. In many ways, it's just like Vietnam. Right. So here in the United States, just as in, in, in the case of the war in Vietnam, we were lied to continuously through four administrations for a long drawn out war that we were told was going swimmingly and the military was, was being organized and a democratic government had been elected by 2.5% uh, of the Afghan population. Um, and, and, and in the end, just as in Vietnam, had no legitimacy. So 20 years more than $2 trillion um, from the United States um, in building infrastructure and a military and this, that, and the other thing. And it took the Taliban 10 days from the first provincial capital to Kabul to take back the country, um, just like in Vietnam. Man. There's one difference. 
which was, uh, you know, as you say, I, my politics, I was a little bit too young for the civil rights movement, kind of started with Vietnam. Um, we cheered on the North Vietnamese. Exactly. That was an anti-imperial struggle as far as we were concerned. It's when I literally discovered mm -hmm. for the first time in my life imperialism and began to think about the connections between what's going on in Vietnam and the United States. And that was, so that was a real important political and intellectual moment for me. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, in the case of the Taliban, we are not doing that. Um, we can still ask questions about imperial power. We can still ask questions about a client state about the extent to which um, the, the Afghan government, which at the first possible occasion fled, um, was dependent upon U.S. aid and not on its own population and therefore the source of legitimacy that are associated with that, that, that clearly wasn't there, although we were told it was. So I think, I think there are certain ways in which lessons transfer from Vietnam um, to Afghanistan. Yeah. But in that important way, I, I am horrified by the prospect of a country that is run by the Taliban. Um, in, and, and not just because of, of, of young girls and, and, and women. Uh, it, it, it is a disaster in all kinds of ways. I think we're beginning to have a sense, as we've done over the course of the last week, some serious thinking about what that was about, um, and some sense of where the Taliban has gained some legitimacy in contrast to the government as it marched across the country. But that certainly doesn't mean that at least I think most of us um, right, cannot, cannot look but in horror um, at what Afghanistan is going to be like in, 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 in the coming years. Uh, and, and yet what's sort of so frightening is, uh, is how quickly um, they are being recognized. Uh, Russia, China, China, two days ago, I read, I believe... Uh, God, the official statement was something like, we have to respect the choices and the will of the Afghan people. Yes, but this is geopolitics, right? So this yeah. is Russia, China, and Pakistan. That I know of, the list hasn't gone beyond that. But, but it, it will follow. It will follow. But to your larger point, and, and, I, and it's a really important question, um, connecting globalization to this. Yeah. I think we now live in a time um, in which... In some sense, old verities have have become tarnished, um, but we don't have we don't have some some new stuff that's being born yet, right? Um, in in the following sense, the U.S. comes away and and the U.S. model and what that tarnished from Afghanistan, right, by its own citizenry and across the world, right? They're blaming it on Biden. It's not Biden's fault. In fact, if anything, you know, I, I support Sleepy Joe and deciding to get out now. Um, th this is something that goes back 20 years, right? So, um, and, and not just Republicans. It's not just Bush and Trump. Obama was as, as much complicit in this um, as, as, as the others, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, but what, even in terms of the promises of liberating Afghanistan, that, that promise is tarnished in a way that I think globalization is tarnished. And I think, I think after Brexit and after Trump, the rosy promises of globalization, that it would lead to um, a democratization of the world, right? Um, that's gone. No one, I think, 
believes that anymore. Even even those staunch defenders, they may still believe it, but they're not willing to go out in public and, and, and proclaim uh, a new era of globalization. That's gone. Again, call me a romantic. Part of me loves globalization. Part of me wants part of me wants that sharing across the world. Part of me wants that world literature. Part of right. So so I'm not I'm not I'm willing to give up on their globalization. I'm not willing to give up on globalization per se. And and I think it, I yeah. think it can be rethought. I don't see any new ideas out there right now. So extreme localism, nah, does interest me. Right. That 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 that's the flip side. Right. So now we have a romanticizing of everything that is local. For me, that's as as empty a promise um, as everything should be globalized. Um, But I don't think we're in a time. Again, you may know more than I. From what I read, from what I hear, there are no good ideas out there about how to confront the nasty, ugly underside of the globalization that had been practiced and that we've been sold. And that worries me just as much as it worries me that we don't have a good concept of the university. So that's where, that's where, that's where I would want to spend my time now if I were doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Right? What, what, what do we see, if only as a glimmer, of new forms of globalization that might emerge as a result of this kind of thing, um, of the collapse of their vision, which I think is, I, I, I think that's pretty incontestable. I, I think their vision, even even mainstream economists gave up on that one after Brexit and Trump, right? Um, now I think they 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 need their hands held to the fire. Not only did they get, they were responsible for it. And, and that's my critique of the mainstream economists. They sold us that bill of goods. Now, for the most part, we as Marxists didn't buy it, but they certainly sold it for the population. Um, they sold it to governments. They sold it to policymakers. And it, that vision, I think, has collapsed. But what takes its place? I, you know, I will be honest. I don't know. I, I don't see it emerging. I don't see that alternative emerging right now. Do you? No, I don't. I mean, I, do, I don't see, a, like, I, I, I agree that in some ways the, the sort of neoliberal promise of rising tides will lift all boats uh, and a kind of vision of capitalism that will actually deliver <laughs> to, you know, a widespread, like, you know, kind of prosperity. Um, that kind of Clinton sort of, way that neoliberalism got sold you know mm-hmm. that is i don't even, i don't i don't even see clinton talking like that you know no, no none of them are using that discourse because i think that discourse fell it didn't fall because of a concerted attack by the left it fell because of like the sort of objective yeah, reality. No, we, we can't take you're absolutely we can't take credit for it yeah they did it to themselves yeah and I, and I think the pandemic has been one more nail in that coffin. Yeah, it has. But we didn't mount, uh, or I, not yet, at least the right sort of, um, let's say, and I want to connect this to your thinking about utopian visions, mm-hmm. right? Because um, that also came up in the interview. And I know you've sort of thought about that and you've 
talked about it and you've certainly been an interlocutor for Gibson Graham and, and talking about the importance of, uh, you know, utopian projects, imagining and enacting, right, collective projects. I, RM is an example, right, of that. In, uh, so it's not like you, you, you always sort of had this interest in ruthless criticism, but also this, the, you know, the utopian thinking. But, um, and I know that in, in the sort of interview, you say, I am interested in expanding the bounds of what our collective vision understands as common sense today, right? Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. the point of a, a, a good political economist to sort of expand and be like, all right, um, we're all thinking about the current system. What about universal health care? So, you know, I guess th that's what I thought or imagined when I was reading those sentences, right? That's, let's push the bounds of what is actually circulating right now. But what, then, ha so you just you just ended, though, with a, the difficulty to even see that in the, in, when it comes to this issue of, let's say, imperialism, and it comes to war and the machinery of war, um, but but that but I know that that's also like there's a little bit of a contradiction because I know that that's not also what you think, right? You think you do hold the space open for that. So how um, I guess what what how can you help us? How can you help us right now? <laughs> because we're really struggling. I, listen, I, I, help, I, help us now. I, all I can tell you is you how I responded. So, so I and and I, I responded not as a conscious decision. So, as I think back, and that's why the interview with Kenan was was so interesting because it forced me to confront where my where my work and thinking have gone over the course of the last couple of decades. And and what I can tell you um, is is that I have in my work. Um, tried to tie together this notion of critique and utopia. So I, I love utopian projects. I love reading about historical utopian projects. I love reminding people that there were lots of people running around in the 19th century who were a hell of a lot more radical than anybody who's parading today, who criticized family and property and wanted to do away with all kinds of institutions that, that people today, including Marxists, take as sacrosanct. Good. So, so, and they and they set up utopian communities, and they gave away all of their property. I, I, I just, I love that. But I'm not interested in in designing utopian communities. I, I'm not interested in finding them, designing them, in in stitching together all the various details, and then selling it as a as a vision. I, I, I for me, that didn't go very far. So I connect utopia with critique in the sense exactly the way you explained it, to expand the boundaries of what we can imagine in the present as changes in the existing order. So critique is a critique of the existing common senses, is a critique of all that is taken to be natural and eternal. Because that's what often happens, right? What happens in the present is fetishized is what either has always existed or needs to exist. And part of, I think, of critique, of a Marxist critique, is to denaturalize, is to historicize, is to say, no, nah, here's the contingent way in which it got stitched together, and that's not the way things need to be. 
to upend to upend all notions of necessity, all notions of naturalness. And that opens then the direction, it seems to me, for exploring alternatives. Alternatives which are not what would communism look like or what would socialism look like, but what would a socialist proposal right now look like? What would a communist proposal right now look like? What, would, what does it mean for us? And this is a, a, something I learned from a, a labor organizer many, many years ago. Our goal is not to design the, the, the healthcare system. Our design is to hold up the banner of universal healthcare and let everyone show up and figure out if we agree that that's the demand, now let's figure out how we're going to satisfy it. And how are we going to satisfy the lives of all those people who have worked 30, 40, 50 years in their lives who are now retired in terms of Social Security? And how are we going to deal with the fact that we've got a few individuals in this country who have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country? So very concrete, specific issues that have been naturalized, either overlooked, ignored, or naturalized by the existing discourses, our job, it seems to me, is to pull that apart, is to criticize those discourses, thereby opening up new possibilities. That's, that's what I mean by utopia. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, and I, that's I, why I want to connect those two things. Yeah. So I become really interested in utopian thinking, but not in the... Not in the way that it's often been, you know, I mean, I love reading Ursula Le Guin, but I have no interest in designing, right, the other planet and, and what that should look like and then, and, then, and then going around and trying to sell that idea. I am interested in criticizing the existing order in order for when people think they don't have an alternative whether it be in the universities or in their jobs or in their households or, or, or in Afghanistan, where they, where they don't see that there's an alternative that pries open that necessity and creates new possibilities. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, in the interview, you and Kenan talked about the vulgarization complex. I was actually going to ask you this when you were going to come to Drew for that conference, to be honest. Um, and it also relates to your blog. And you talked about, I'm not just, just you know, it's not a, just a project of translation. And, and that it's, it's not, it's not that, right. And, um, and I thought about this one moment in, I think it was, I was taking a seminar with Steve Resnick. And then I was asking, but I, I asked him, so how do you how do you keep people from vulgarizing over determination? Mm -hmm. And he um, at the, he stopped and he was like, wait, everybody stop. That was an extremely important question. Say it again. And when he turned to me and you know how he could be that intense. And for a second, the question just blew out of my brain. I couldn't even remember what the question was. I was like, okay, no, I remember what I remember what it was. And but you know, he had something to say about um, you know mutual constitution is not multiple causality. And but but I'm curious about that in your current project in the block. I know with all the work that you have done on postmodernism and anti-essentialist theorization that you 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 are attentive and thinking about well what is an over what, what would an overdetermined now that's a that's the title of this podcast overdetermined right so uh, how do you do that work 
at a popular level without in some ways resorting to almost vulgar (laughs) or determinist, which are easier explanations, to be honest. And we know people who who fall into that camp, whose whose maybe popular work tends a little bit in that direction, right? So how do you uh, think about that in in your current project? I I worry about it all the time. Um, But by the way, I worry about it not on just on my blog or when I give a talk. Um, I, I, I worried about it when I did that other stuff that I no longer do. Um, whatever you want to call it, more high theory, uh, academic, scholarly stuff. I don't have the patience to do it any longer. I don't have the patience to read it. I don't have the patience to write it. Um, but I'm certainly a product of it. Um, but just, can I contest one part of your question? I don't think doing that other stuff is easier. I don't think this is harder, the the tradition out of which we come, the tradition you've called over determination, although I never use that word. Um, I don't use it on my blog. I don't use it in the in, in the book manuscript I just finished. Um, and for a variety of reasons that we can discuss. But I don't think whatever you want to call that, that anti-essentialism or, or, or over-determination, whatever, I don't think that's harder than the other. Okay, so so then what is it? What does it come down to? Um, in my current work, um, which is not writing those academic articles for the most part, right? A couple of chapters in recent years. Um, the the book manuscript is decidedly, I hope, is used in the academy as a textbook, but is is but is not written in some of the traditional ways that we write our scholarly work. I'm not attempting to impress um, other scholars out there. I'm hoping they use it, so I'm not trying to piss them off. <laughs> but, um, but I worry about it all the time because, as you say, you can fall into it. You can fall into the story. So very concretely, um, one of the things that, that um, I've done on the blog is, of course, analyze the economic crises associated with 2007 and 2008, what I call the Second Great Depression, and then the pandemic, what I call the, the, uh, the, the COVID depression. Um, and we come out of a tradition uh, as Marxists where capitalism has certain laws of motion and one way or another, they, get, they, they, they come to bear and produce a crisis. And, and in, in our particular rethinking Marxism tradition, We've spent a lot of time trying to undo that and rethink that. Um, and so point blank in, uh, on the blog and point blank in the, the new book manuscript, I write that, for example, in comparing the 1930s, 2007 and 2008 in the pandemic depression, that they don't have anything in common. That the causes and effects, uh, there's nothing they have in common. That one needs to analyze the concrete circumstances in each case. And I know that's going to raise the hackles of certain people out there, and, that, and, that, and that's fine. Um, I am committed to that idea that that's part of the work that we have to do is, uh, to use Lenin's old category, a concrete analysis of the concrete circumstances. Um, we do that, and, and we carry lots of concepts with us, and we carry lots of knowledges of other events with us, and 
it's not like we walk in as a tabula rasa and and just look at the facts. I mean, that, right? Epistemologically, that that's a stupid idea. Um, but we also, at least, I attempt to even on the blog, as you say, a more um, popular form of communication, if you will, um, to try to stay away from those stories in which all of the particular circumstances are just um, the, the phenomena um, of some underlying essence. Um, can I say I always, I, I always stay, no, I probably don't. I probably slip in all kinds of ways and you know, that's life. But, but I, but I am conscious of that. And I, and I, and I try um, for theoretical reasons and for political reasons um, to, to work in that vein rather than to invoke. Um, theoretical reasons, just because that's the kind, you know, with you and others, that's the kind of work that I've been doing for, for the last four decades. Uh, and, even, and even before that, uh, when I first started reading Althusser and Hindus and Hearst and, you know, going back. Um, but also political reasons. Um, because uh, I think um, that those overarching stories, those stories that are driven by a few causal essences are disabling. Um, I, I think they um, either um, stop people in their tracks, in part in the way that, that some of the new climate crisis uh, discourse is stopping people in their tracks. Nothing can be done. Well, if nothing can be done, if it's inexorable, then that, that I, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do it. That's a problem. And, and I, think, I think certain theories of capitalism have also led to that. Um, either people think they, nothing can be done. It's an old problem in the Second International. Um, you know, w w wait until capitalism uh, matures and then you can do something. You know, what the hell do you do in the meantime? Well, you get along with the bourgeoisie and, 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 and there's nothing else that can be done. That, that, that became a problem. Um, or that they spend their, their time looking for the elusive key that unlocks it all. And of course, you can spend a lot of time. That's, that's where that work can be hard. You've got to spend a lot of time looking for that key that unlocks it all. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Politically, I find both of those to be problematic. And so I think there are theoretical and political reasons to open that discourse up, use all of, all of that, that important stuff that you and, and others have done um, in a more theoretical vein and bring those to bear on very concrete stories and circumstances that exist in the world today. That's at least... I don't think of it so much as a burden, but that certainly is uh, a certain kind of responsibility that I carry. That's that, that, that might, I learned economics. I taught and, and, and wrote about that stuff for, for four decades. Um, I am placed therefore to be able to read what um, the, the crap that mainstream economists write on a regular basis, that the, the crap that policymakers who listen to those mainstream economists, what they, what they write and what they say, um, those of us who have been, we are uniquely positioned to read and undo um, and open up and 
question in order in order to create other possibilities. Um, that that that's that's a theoretical project, but it's also for me a political project. So I had this question about. Um, in terms of critique and how that ends up intersecting with with praxis, with with organizing, with uh, you know trying to enact change, mm-hmm. um, and it, as again, I come at this as um, primarily as a labor organizer, and I and I I really appreciate your thoughts about critique and found that as you know as an organizer in labor, a lot of what I did was actually trying to educate and and build up discourses like you're talking about uh, that people can get around um, and, you know, to, to, to try and prompt a, a larger view of things, uh, actually in the hopes of trying to sort of increase involvement and, you know, prompt something uh in terms of action, you know, and, and if, for me, obviously, this is thinking of the at the a very local level. What I'm kind of overall hearing from you is just uh, that there's this kind of lack of critique that doesn't just critique, but also reveals that there are other possibilities out there. And what I'm so for me, where the rubber meets the road is thinking about how, how can we take that and then also then build it into struggles, build it into, you know, various uh, groups, uh, you, whether it's a labor union, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, a movement around a particular cause. You know, we have a lot of at times fragmentation on the left. Um, how can we, how can we kind of maybe bring this all together a little bit more and, or, you know, where does the, where does this all come together for you? Do you have thoughts in, in terms of that kind of very practical on the ground organizing and, and, uh, and acting of other, other futures? Yeah. I, 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 don't have a good answer to your question. It's a really good question. I don't have a good answer. I wish I could say, here's the movement, or here's the political party, or here's here's the thing we need. I don't have it, and in all honesty, I find myself resisting that, at least in this particular conjuncture. Because um, I think every time I see one of those things, it's a false promise. Um, and, yeah. and I don't want to go there. I also don't think there's a privileged activity. So to reveal my cards, I hate going to demonstrations. I've been to a million in my life uh, and I hate, I, I, I have always hated them. Um, and as I've gotten older, I think I hate them even more um, because they're boring because all of these people come out and this is what I lived in Chicago, but also where I am now in Vermont and in Louisville, Kentucky and elsewhere where, where I spend time and live. And they always do the same thing. And they always congregate people in a public space. And they always have a some kind of stage or podium or people get up and they give speeches and then go rah-rah and then go home. And, and that's the end of the story. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to denigrate. I, 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 so, some, of, some of my best friends, including my wife, are organizers of these things. I, you know, th- these are committed folks. It's, but, but we've got to come up with a better way. My own, my own I, I agree. I, I, you know, I, 
I don't spend a lot of time. I also don't organize a labor union, although I have lots of friends who are in, in, in the, the trade union movement in the United States and, and elsewhere. Um, I, 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 so I do, a, I do a couple of other things. Um, and, and we mentioned before, and so I do my blog. Uh, and that's one way in which I try to add to this. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the most important way. I certainly don't think it's the only way. Um, and I don't think there is a single important only way of doing this thing, but it's where I attempt to contest on a daily basis, the existing common senses out there. And, and I'm very happy when I hear from my friends in the labor movement. And when I hear from my friends who teach in classrooms and elsewhere, that they're able to assign this stuff to people. Cause if it, if it gets people thinking in a different way, if it opens up new possibilities, then all the better. Um, so that's a contribution. We mentioned the book that I've been working on. That's another contribution. It's what I can do um, and what I attempt to do. Um, but it's not. It, it, let me let me do it in terms of a theme that I that I pick up in that book. Um, I explain that that Marx and, and Engels and, and many other Marxists over the years express a combination of of, of arrogance and humility. Um, that's why I present Marx. Mm-hmm. You know, he and Engels and, and, and a lot of the Marxists we know um, are arrogant sons of bitches. I mean, they, they, they think, you know, that they can stand up in front of a crowd or a classroom or write an article or give a talk and, and they got something to say. That requires a certain arrogance, right? Just shut up and sit down. No, I got to say something. I got to write something. That's, that's a kind of, and I, I got no problem with that. Um, and, and, and certainly, all you have to do is read the Communist Manifesto, but 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 you know, read Capital, read it. They were they were arrogant sons of bitches. Um, <laughs> they had something to say, and they were going to say it. Um, but they were also, and this is not an adjective that's often attached to them, or, or any Marxist for that matter. They were also humble, and they were humble in a, in, a, in a very political sense. They were humble in the sense that they weren't going to write the recipes for the for the cookshops of the future. They weren't going to design to respond to your question before moving on those utopias. Um, cause that's what happens in the streets. That's what happens by the people, by the masses. And Marxists have yeah. always been committed to that idea that, that a few academics or a few intellectuals, um, aren't going to sit there in their armchairs and design what that's going to look like. It's going to be masses of people changing the existing order and what they hope is a better direction. That is the basis of revolutionary activity It's the basis of what you call praxis. Um, we can assist in that. We are participants in that. Those of us who are academics, those of us who might want to call ourselves or are called by others intellectuals, but, but we're not going to design that stuff. And we're not going to have five of us meet in New York City and set up a new political party. And, and, and I, I've seen that too many times in my life. Um, but together, by going to those boring demonstrations and by organizing trade unions and by participating in political activities and by writing articles and publishing books and doing a journal and a blog and be, yeah, one hopes that that coalesces, but it only coalesces in circumstances not of our own choosing. It coalesces in circumstances that are out there. We don't choose that. All we can do is be ready. All we can do is carry on that activity and challenge those common senses and create spaces. And, and, and then there are moments in which that change happens. I would end on that one, but that's okay. 
Ah, não, 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 não. Eu...